Thanks for tuning in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Eric Roges, the Executive Pastor here at Rolling Hills. We are so glad that you've joined us today for the second week of our series, The One. Today you'll hear from Pastor Nick teach from Ruth 2 and what falling in love looks like from a biblical perspective. Now, here's Pastor Nick. Good morning. I meant to do that. Hey, well, you know, we are in a series about dating and marriage. It's called The One. You see that little triangle on top of the little Z, the, the O in one. Looks like a little diamond. Maybe, some, maybe somebody's going to get one by the time this series is over, and we'll just we'll put it on our Instagram and sell it. Like, I don't know of anybody. So please don't elbow the person that you're sitting next to and have that, like, awkward. I think I just created some drama for some people on the way home today, and I didn't even mean to. Um, it's because I'm off of sugar. Um, not the good kind. I mean, not, not the kind that, like, God put inside the honeydew to make it amazing, that it's really good for your body. But, like, the, the added, refined, bleached, like, unnecessary sugar that we basically, as humans, specifically Americans, put in everything that your body doesn't know what to do with it. So it just converts it to fat and makes your genes not fit. Like, that kind of sugar. So I'm in a bad mood today, basically. Um, which is a great day to come and talk about, like, marriage and relationships and dating and all of those things. Um, and, and so, but it also means this. That my intention today is not to sugarcoat anything and and not make anything sound better than it is or worse than it is. Not not inflict any sort of like relationship shame or difficulty on anybody because of how difficult marriage is or the fact that marriage hasn't come. Or, or, Or paint any sort of like rosy picture of what it can be if you would just get there and have that in your life. Like that's not the goal. No sugarcoating and no bypassing the idea that this is a challenge. And so regardless of where you are in the spectrum of this series, one, I'm glad you're here. And if that means single or married and it's awful or married and it's great or married and divorced and then finding yourself single again, or even the people that I know in the room who were married for a long, long time and then all of a sudden widowhood happened. Or or you became a widower, and you didn't know how long that season was going to last in your life, regardless of where you are in this moment. And I know specifically just glancing around the room and knowing where I am as a pastor and realizing where we are as a people that there are folks in hard spots. And Heather Zimple, and you guys have heard me mention her before, she's a discipleship pastor at National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and I think she's written and said fantastic things. And, and she says these words, stories of great faith always begin with great adversity. So if you're in a hard spot today, I think that probably means you're in a good spot today. And poised and ready for God to do something. We, uh, about a year and a half ago, went through an entire series on the book of Ruth, found in the Old Testament, a narrative nestled between the judges and the time when Israel received a king. You get the story of this lady, and it's an incredible story because she's not even Jewish. She's a Moabite girl that a Jewish guy went to marry, and we're not going to do the whole book of Ruth because this is not a whole series. It's just a glimpse of that story today, basically a survey of what was going on in her life, and we're going to go really quickly through parts of chapter one and chapter two and land in chapter three. And so if you want to ready your Bibles and turn there, basically we'll summarize it to say that at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, like this is way after the Red Sea when Moses parted it and the people walked on long safely into the promised land. This is way after all the battles that transpired and the people entered into the promised land and the walls of Jericho fell down and they occupied their different territories. This is after the time of judges, you know, like Gideon and Deborah and Samson and all these great fantastic stories. It's right in the middle of that before King Saul came, who eventually led to King David coming. And we get this story 
story and there's a famine in the land. And famine is not new to Scripture. They apparently faced famines all the time. What in the world would happen in our life if we did? But they faced a famine. And so what happened was this man and his wife and his two sons, the wife was named Naomi. That's a familiar name from Scripture. Naomi, they go to live in the land of Moab. And Moab, if you go way back into the Old Testament, you find out that the Moabites even existed as an abomination to God. These were evil people. Theirs is an R-rated story in Scripture. You can find about where the Moabites came from. And so this man takes his family to a place that God never intended them to be, to live among a people that he never intended for them to be like. And in Ruth 1.1, it says basically that they went to sojourn there. It was basically an extended stay or an Airbnb. They were only supposed to go there while the famine persisted, but it lasted longer. And while they were there, the man died. And while they were there, the two sons took Moabite women as their wives. And then guess what happened? They died. So Naomi, who is now a bitter woman, is left with no husband and two daughters-in-law and no sons in a land that God did not intend for her to be. And it wasn't just a sojourn experience in her life. It was more than 10 years. You're looking at the situation that you're in, some of you, maybe all of us, and and thinking, Nick, I never intended this season of my life to last as long as it has. I I never intended for this season in my life, regardless of what that marriage status is, there are maybe single folks in the room who are thinking, yeah, I've been going through a famine. There's nobody out there worth paying attention to. It's a drought, McAllen, and it's lasted way longer than I thought. Or maybe even, and maybe probably, married folks in the room who are way past the wedding bells and the wedding bliss, and you are deep into the woes of the fact that marriage is hard, and you're wondering if it ever will get better. And what you thought is this little roller coaster of a season is going to soon go right back up, and we're just in a valley right now, but we're going to power through it, and COVID's going to end, and things are going to get better again. And you're looking back like we are right now. I never knew this season of our lives, masks, was going to last as long as it has. And maybe there's that moment in marriage where you're thinking, I never thought this would last. I never thought that I would be sojourning in this moment, in this place, for this season, for this long. Regardless of where you are, if it's hard, it it might be a good spot. Because what God may want to do is to leverage that to develop great faith and to make an incredible difference. The scriptures have something really powerful to say to each of us, particularly from this story, regardless of where you find yourself today and regardless of how long you've been there. Naomi goes to this land with a husband and two sons, and now she's ready to go back home with neither, only these two daughters. And she says to those ladies, you know this part of the story of the book of Ruth, she says to those two girls, hey, listen, you need to go back to your parents. You need to go back to your family. You need to go back to your clans. You need to find new husbands from your, y'all are still young. You can still have kids. Y'all just go back and I'm gonna go back to my people, a bitter woman, and it's gonna be difficult, but I can't have y'all being a burden and taking these. So she says that to these girls. And then Orpah, you know, we, she does not get a book named after her in scripture. So, you know, she's a character that's about to go away real fast. You know that, right? So Orpah says, okay, thank you, I love you, you know, hugs her neck, and then goes back to her parents. We don't fault her for that. That makes sense. 
But Ruth says powerful words. And if you have not read these words out loud in Scripture because somebody told you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth chapter 1 at one point in your life, if you've been to a wedding, you have likely heard these words. And you've thought to yourself, well, that is a really great verse all about marriage. You didn't realize that it was really a girl saying it to her mother-in-law. So in Ruth chapter 1, Naomi urges the girls to go back. Look, Naomi said in verse 15, your your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Now, oh yeah, I've heard those words, Nick Allen. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Y'all didn't know that death do us part was about Ruth and her mother-in-law and not about husband and wife. It says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And that that word determined in Scripture, if you look back to the Hebrew root, it literally means courage. And I think both of those words go so well to each other in Scripture. I'm about to take another sip of my coffee. There's no sugar in it. I think those words go really, really well together in Scripture. The idea of being determined and the idea of being courageous. Because you can't find You can't find me someone who exhibits great courage who is not determined and committed in their life. And you can't find me someone who is committed and determined in their life who does not also exhibit great courage. And that's the part of this story where we look at our notes today and we find ourselves, okay, this is it. This is a girl who has now lost her husband and now she's about to leave behind her family to go with the woman that she doesn't know the culture, she doesn't know the community, she doesn't know the religion, she doesn't know the practice. She's going to be there and she's experienced loss and now she's experienced lack and even in those moments... God is working. He is working to leverage Ruth's commitment for the greater good. I think God has that word to say to us today. This is a regardless of where you find yourself in the circumstance or the story or the relationship status today. This is a regardless of your loss and regardless of your lack. Nick Allen, I don't have that. I'm not in that kind of relationship. Regardless of your lack, God can leverage your commitment and faith. Oh, I've lost Regardless of your loss, God can leverage your commitment in faith and singleness and marriage and divorce and remarriage and and the death of a spouse. God can leverage that story to bring about great commitment and great faith and ultimately change the world around us. The story advances, and this is when Boaz, you know that name, he comes into the picture. Because Ruth, now in, in the land of God's people, in the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, says to her, okay, I think I need to go to work. I think I need to get a job. I think I need to take care of us. And so let me walk behind the harvesters in the field like the other women do and pick up what the harvesters leave behind. And that way we will have grain. And so, of course, Naomi obliges and says, yep, you can go and get to work. And it happens to be the field of a man named Boaz. And so we're sitting there, oh, it's all the little relationship, feel-good moments that are happening in life. This is when the movie starts to change and the music starts to swell and you're like, oh, she's about to meet somebody. Ruth was not looking for love. Ruth was looking for dinner. <laughs> and y'all are like, that is the dating scene, Nick Allen. I do not need a husband. I just need a man to take me out to eat and feed me a good meal. <laughs> she wasn't looking for love. She's looking for food. And we'll transition that to see that that's ultimately what we're all looking for. And the problem is when we try to find the, the thing that we need the most and the places that we're least likely to find it. She wasn't looking for love. She's just looking for food. 
the goal for the believer in Jesus Christ, the goal for the follower of Jesus, is to be like Jesus. And the second Boaz comes on the scene, that's what you realize he is. I mean, we're, we're long before Jesus. In fact, he's one of the ancestors of like earthly Jesus. We're figuring out who this Jesus is going to be. And long before they got together, you figure out this is a man who is saturated by God. And so we realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of God, as followers of the way, our whole goal is that our reputation would be one of saturation, saturated with the word of God, literally so soaked and bathed in this that it drips out of us in everything that we do and in everything that we say and in everything that we are. Here's a wealthy landowner. Here's a businessman. Here's a, okay, he's also a relative, but that's a different part of the story that we could tackle at another time but he's God-saturated. If we needed to come up with a way to describe him, that's what he is. His first words on the scene in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. You know that place because of Christmas. When he arrived from Bethlehem and he greeted the harvesters, what does he say? The Lord be with you. Even his words speak hospitality and honor. He's speaking to people that are servants to him, and he's like, the Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you, they answered. And if you continue down in Ruth chapter 2, what you realize is that Boaz notices Ruth, and he realizes that she's a foreigner, and he realizes that she's a female, and he says, let her glean, let her go behind the harvesters, let her pick up the wheat that she needs. He not only gave her grain, but he also gave her protection, ordering his men to make sure that she was safe while she did it. And ultimately, what we understand is that Boaz is following God's plan, because way back in the book of Leviticus chapter 23, God specifically said, hey, when you own land, when you have fields, when this nation that I'm going to give you is yours. Make sure you leave some on the edges. Make sure you leave some margin on your fields and in your life for people who are aliens and people who are foreigners and people who are outside of you to come and pick up what's left so that they can be taken care of too. Boaz is a man that's honoring the word of God because he's a God-saturated man and we see that in his picture. And he also notices that about Ruth. He says down in verse 11, Boaz looked at her and he replied, he said, I've been told, here's your reputation, Ruth, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. We could literally zero in on just these two verses for the duration of the service. You want to know how I know he's a God-saturated man? Because he's not taking credit for the good things that are happening to Ruth. He's pointing right back to God saying, may the Lord, even if he has to use me to do it, may the Lord bless you and repay you for all that you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord. You don't know this Lord because you grew up in Moab and y'all didn't follow the Lord, but let me tell you about him. He's going to take care of you. He's pointing her to God. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She wasn't looking for love. She was looking for food and she found a whole lot more. She found a God-saturated man who would point her to God himself. In the life of the church, we spend a lot of time preparing for marriage. We spend a lot of time making sure that we understand and we define what a good and healthy marriage is, but there's a difference between preparing for marriage and becoming like Christ. There's a difference between preparing for marriage and becoming like Christ. We don't act like Jesus to earn some kind of blessing from Jesus 
in the form of the attention from others who are trying to also be like Jesus. When we reduce Christ-likeness to a transaction in our lives that will somehow make it possible for somebody else to notice us and want to be with us, we make an idol out of that person and the future marriage that we might have with them. We make following Jesus a means to a relationship end as opposed to the ultimate end unto itself. We want to ask that cliche that says, oh, if you just focus on being like Jesus and not worry about finding the perfect spouse, then the perfect spouse is going to one day find you. Because first of all, there is no such thing as that perfect. And, And there is no pressure to be that perfect. And there may not be a more trivial reason to focus on being Christ-like. What if you put that on a dating profile? What if it was single Christian guy working hard at being Christ-like, man, so that I can find, woo, and attract many a Christ-like woman? Hashtag ready and waiting. (laughs) What if instead it was just single guy doing everything that I can? to live according to this word and to be like Jesus so that I can deliver a hope-filled message to a world that is dying and hurting without Christ and maybe somehow and some way along the way give glory to my big brother. His name is Jesus. The goal is that our reputation be one of saturation, not because of who we might meet, but because of who we already know to let your reputation be so overflowing with the word of God and the peace of God and the life of Jesus, not because of who might notice you, but because who you want to give all your notice to. Somehow or another, the story takes a turn You know, Naomi gets wind of this and she starts to play matchmaker and she has this idea that maybe Boaz, because he's a family relative and because in their culture it meant that it might be his job to marry the widow of one of his relatives so that they could be taken care of. It's this whole different transactional culture that they're a part of and she's starting to let her wheels spin and you enter into chapter three and she's like, okay, this is how we're going to orchestrate this matter. And that's not how we do it. That's not how we find someone. That's not how we engage in relationships in our day and in our culture. We fall in love right? Like we, we meet someone, boy meets girl, and girl meets boy, and then they somehow fall in love, and then all of a sudden, like, birds chirp, and like, the hallelujah chorus is playing in the background, and like, magic happens, and it's this, they turn into cartoons, and all of a sudden, everybody lives happily ever after in this great big blissful world that we live in. We fall in love, and falling in love is a really old concept, but it dates back to the 1500s, not the 0-hundreds. You see, falling in love is an old concept, but it's not necessarily a biblical one. We're all wrapped up in this idea of finding a soulmate or finding the one mate that we always want to be with. And there might not be a Bible verse to go out and support the fact that there is one perfect person for every other person out there on the planet. There's a a blog, and and Matt Chandler brought highlight to it when he started saying on a stage, hey, by the way, my wife, she's just a girl that I happen to stand before God and our friends and our family members and commit my life to. But there's nothing magical about that soulmate aha moment where, like, sparkling lights fell on her head, and she is the one for me. She's the one I committed myself to, and so therefore she is the one for me. He highlights this blog, A Newlywed Wife. One year from her wedding day on the first anniversary, she writes this reflection. There is, 
Her dad told her this. She didn't believe him at the time. There is no one person for you. But once you marry someone, that person becomes your one person. So in the story of Ruth, they make their way to the threshing floor. And there's a lot of history and there's a lot of culture and there's a lot of strange things that happen up on the threshing floor. Basically, the men have they've separated the wheat from the chaff and they've got their piles of grain and they sleep by their piles of grain at night so that they can protect their piles of grain so that nobody would come and steal their piles of grain. And certain women of ill repute would come into the threshing floor late at night to see who they could attract and what sort of relationships they could develop. And Naomi has this idea that she's going to send Ruth into the mix of all of that. And so she says, hey, by the way, in Ruth chapter 1, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. And so she enacts this strategy. And the threshing floor, a lot of things happen, and there's a lot of adversity, and there's a lot of controversy that goes on the moment. We're not going to say anything that Scripture doesn't say today, but there are scholars who differ on what, we're going to let what happened on the threshing floor stay on the threshing floor and only go with what Scripture tells us about the threshing floor. But you and I have different assumptions about that, like we have assumptions about everything else, starting with singleness. The idea of what it was like in this moment for Ruth and Naomi to be alone and single. One of those lies that we believe is that single equals alone. Because way back to their commitment in Ruth chapter 1, they were anything but alone. They had each other. We know in the book of Genesis that God looked at all of his creation. He looked at the animals that he created and the waves that he created and the trees that he created and all of the different parts of his creation. And he said over and over and over again, it is good. And then he got to the man and he said, it is not good for what man to be alone. I will make a wife for him. No, he doesn't say I'll make a wife. He doesn't use the Hebrew word for spouse. He says, I'll make a helper partner. Someone to be alongside him. And yes, in that moment, it was Eve and she was his mate. She was his spouse. But it's not to say that we can't continue to find that kind of community and those kind of relationships and that kind of health, even in the life of our church today. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says this, in Christ, though many, we form one body and each member, single, married, divorced, remarried, widowed, each member belongs to all the others. Sam Albury is a pastor, and he's British, and so naturally everything that he says just sounds so much wiser than I. And he, he says these words that if you're single, you have a direct stake. You're a shareholder in the marriages in your church being healthy. We can look at the passages of Scripture that highlight marriage and realize, well, if I'm not in one, then I don't have to pay attention to those passages of Scriptures. Yes, you do, because you belong to us and we belong to you. You are a direct stakeholder in the marriages in your church being healthy. And if you're married in the church, you have a direct stake in the single people in your church being healthy and whole and connected and committed. We are in a community where we belong to each other. So the idea of Being single is never, ever intended to be alone. And if that's the manifestation that we've created in our communities, then we've done it wrong. Because we're connected. We belong to one another. We also buy into this lie, and we believe this lie, that somehow our another, our role or our relationship status equals our worth. 
that somehow our role and our relationship status equals our worth. That's when the idea of falling in love hurts so badly and hurts us most. When we assume that somehow the affection that I feel for one other person is going to provide for me all of my satisfaction and all of my worth in life. We go back to Ephesians chapter 5. It says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Our status in our God saturation, our status in our relationships, our status in belonging to one another is not in whatever that relationship is on earth. It's about whatever that relationship is for all. And it's our relationship with God being his children that matters. That's where our worth is found. Not in what that status is, but what this status is. And so the reason why I'm a shareholder and a stakeholder and have a a direct responsibility for the single people in the life of our church is because you being like Jesus affects me. And the reason why if you are single in the life of the church today, you have a direct share or a direct stake in the, the health of the marriages that are all around you because even if you're not in one of those marriages yourself, those relationships, because we belong to one another, those people being more like Jesus affects you. Me being God-saturated and you being God-saturated and me being so stuffed and so filled up with this, it affects all of this. We don't just make assumptions and believe lies about the idea of being single. We do that about marriage too. We buy into the lie that marriage means fulfilled. And that's when marriage becomes an idol. Supposing that somehow or another this relationship that we have on earth is going to be the thing that fills us. No, that's God's job. I have been one of those people that has said this to my wife. I've said to Susan, and she said to me, oh, I hope I die first. And it's an offhanded compliment. It's meant to say, you're so awesome, I can't imagine my life without you. But it's really a slap in the face of anybody in our community that's single. Because if you boil it down... What we really confess to saying is, I'd I'd just rather go ahead and go home and be with Jesus than be where you are. Sorry for that. But even more than that, it's a slap in the face to the sufficiency of Christ. Because in that moment, I can't imagine one day without you. I hope I die first because I can't go on living without you. Jesus, you're real good as long as I get to keep her. You're enough as long as she's in it with me. When he's really supposed to be enough regardless. Marriage isn't what makes us fulfilled. The word of God is what makes us fulfilled. Kelly Minter, she's part of our church. She's a leader in our community and she writes Bible studies and speaks at conferences all over. She wrote a book, a Bible study book called Ruth, um, Loss, Love, and Legacy. And I went through that Bible study a year and a half ago when I was prepping for the whole series on Ruth because it was just great information and really good illustrations. And in that book, she says, uh, 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 approaching the word hungry is important because we're less likely to leave until we've been filled. Marriage, falling in love, having those feelings, living with those butterflies, walking in that moment cannot be what fills you or sustains you. That's too much pressure for your spouse. And ultimately, as much as marriage is a holy sacrament unto God, 
it pales in comparison to your relationship with Christ. And what does every good parent say to their kids if they try to get a snack before dinner? You'll ruin your supper. We're not supposed to be so appetizer-filled on the things of the world, even the good things of the world, that we don't have room to gorge ourselves on the things of God. So we want to approach this word hungry, knowing that it is what fills us. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, when your words came, I ate them. I filled myself up on them, God. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Marriage and the thought of being in one and the desire to enter in one as a single person should ultimately only whet your appetite for Jesus. And the greatest thing about my marriage should be that I am not the one for Susan, but I point her to the one who is. And she's not the, oh, butterfly, one for me, but she points me because of her God-saturated life to the one who is. You go back to Ruth chapter 3 and you dive back in and you realize that there's another kind of like lie that we believe in the world that, okay, well, marriage is all fulfilling in my life or that marriage is for me. It's, it's for me. It's for us. It's God's great gift to us. And some of y'all didn't get it, but oh, I'm so glad he gave it to us. So one day Ruth's mother-in-law says, hey, I'm going to find a home for you. I'm going to find a place of security for you. The NASB literally says, I'm going to seek security for you. And what you realize is that what she's trying to find for her matchmaker make a match is not just a husband and a home. What it literally means is resting place. She wants to make sure that she's got peace in life and a place to belong. That's hardly the fall in love kind of feeling that you see painted in all of the movies that we watch. Do you know that just under 50% of marriages in the United States, first marriages, including Christian ones, end in divorce? That stat only raises when you talk about second marriages and subsequent third marriages. It earns us a top 10 spot in the divorce rate worldwide. In fact, I think we're number six right now. So when you you base marriage on this idea of falling in love, it's a dangerous assumption because we can just as easily fall out of love. And if you base marriage on what is in it for you, then you can base being out of marriage on what's no longer in it for you. It's no longer the thing that fills you up. It's no longer the thing that meets all your needs. And basing a marriage loosely on the concept of feeling rather than the fervor of commitment and the moments when it's hard and it takes courage and Conviction is, is dangerous. It'll fail even if it lasts. So Naomi gives her a plan, and she's supposed to go down to the threshing floor, and she's supposed to find where Boaz is laying by his grain, and she's supposed to lay beside him, and when he wakes up, she's supposed to tell him, hey, cover me with your wings, give me your protection, let me be your wife, take me as your own, provide for me this redemption. And he's like, whoa, he's a little bit startled in the moment, but he realizes that this is where God is leading him. And in verse 15, he looks at her, and he, he says some really important words. He, he said, bring me the shawl. Bring me the shawl that you were wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. So he said, okay, wait a minute. There's another relative. You missed part of the story. There's another relative that's a little bit closer than me. I got to go talk to him first. I got to get his permission. But yes, I'm willing to take you. But hey, before, listen, we got to separate for tonight. But then when we come back, we're going to work all this out. Hey, bring me your shawl. I'm going to fill it up with grain and barley one more time. And he left and she left. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, how did it go? 
Like she said, she wants all the juicy details. <gasps> Tell me all about it. How did he go? What was he wearing? Where did he take you? <gasps> did you eat all? I mean, like, what's, what? Tell me all the details. Did he nurse your hair back from your face? Did he kiss you goodnight? Did he hold your, did he give you his, like, what's, give me the, de- we want the details too, right? Tell me how it went. And Naomi, uh, Ruth told Naomi everything that Boaz had done for her, verse 17. She added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. There's so much that we get from the picture of Ruth, this idea of gospel covering, this idea of marriage being what God had created, a picture of the gospel relationship where Jesus and his bride, the church, live in perfect commitment and harmony together. That's the picture that we're supposed to paint for the rest of the world, and we never will unless we're focused on what it means to be God-saturated in our everyday lives. A lot of times we focus on the idea that marriage is a gift to us, but what if? What if more than marriage being God's gift to me is an opportunity for us to give a gift to him? Naomi wanted her to find a place of rest, a place of peace, a place to belong. It's worship. What if marriage isn't God's gift to any of us, but ultimately an opportunity for us to give a gift back to him? And what if marriage is less about how we serve that one other Because, you know, there's always one who serves more. And if we start to keep score, then she gets mad because she does more for him and he never pays attention and he's really ungrateful and then he does more. Then It's this whole transactional kind of relationship marriage where each one of you one-ups the other and outdoes the other and then holds the other accountable for the one that they did. What if marriage is less about the way we serve each other and more about the way we serve the world together? I love that Naomi gets the grain in this story. Who got the benefit of Boaz and Ruth coming together? The family did. The community did. And ultimately, we all did. Because you trace that back, guess who came from Ruth and Boaz? King David. And you fast forward that, ultimately, King David. Jesus, what if marriage is less about what we get from the other and more about what we give all others together because we're so God-saturated and we're so focused on Christ that all we can do is fill others up too. The book of Titus is a short book in the New Testament and it spends a lot of time talking about how old men mentor young men and old women mentor young women. And it says at the end that all these things, everything that he wrote in that letter, all these things are things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the stuff that we should teach. This is the stuff that we should talk about. This is the stuff that should saturate our very lives so that regardless of the relationship status that we find ourselves in, we are so characterized by the word of God and the spirit of God and the truths of God and Jesus, that everything else in this life pales in comparison for a lot of people, for all of us. 
our current popular narrative is that falling in love is all about what you get. Ultimately, the idea of any of these relationships and any of the places that we find ourselves should be all about what we give. Not about what we get from the one or give to the one, but ultimately what we show the world of the one that really matters, of the one that can fill us up. The whole goal of this is to be so saturated with Jesus, so courageously committed to Christ-likeness and service and sacrifice, that no matter where we find ourselves, we are settled in that. The close of chapter 3, Naomi gives Ruth this promise and says, hey, this is all a really good sign. This barley in your shawl that he sent you home with, taking care of me, this is great news. Because you know what? He's not going to rest until the matter is settled today. Sometimes I think we need that in our lives. Maybe not to go to sleep tonight and, until whatever matter you're working through is settled. Whatever conflict you have with a spouse, whatever challenge you have at home, don't rest until it's settled. Whatever conviction you have about the relationship with, that you're in, whether it's good and healthy and going somewhere, or whether it's dangerous and difficult and preventing you from seeing and showing Jesus, settle that matter today. And maybe more importantly, the question that has to be asked is where are you in the only relationship that really matters, the one with Jesus? Settle that matter today. Courageously committing your life to following Christ, being an imitator of God as his child. That's where your worth comes from. That's where your value comes from. That's what your life is in. Settle that matter today. Committing yourself to Christ regardless of what happens in the future. Would you pray with me? Father, our hope and prayer and desire today is that you would be glorified. And my prayer is that your peace would reign in this place in such a way that people feel compelled and called and convicted to be wholly and completely yours. Somehow or another, God, you would continue to show us what it means to live a holy and completely God-saturated life. That this word and that your son would be our peace and our portion, our calling and our conviction. And that when the world looks at us and sees us and experiences us and evaluates all the relationships that we find ourselves in in life, regardless of what they are, what they ultimately see is a picture of the sacrifice of your son who you willingly gave so that we might have abundant life. Father, for my friends in this room who have experienced great loss, I pray that you would fill them up. For my friends... I'm thinking about some of my brothers who are here today who are walking in incredible adversity. 
would you saturate them with yourself? For those who are in a position of longing, who feel like there is lack, God, I pray that you would overflow them with the power of your spirit. And that ultimately and triumphantly, God, you would remind us that daily falling in love with you is more important than any kind of love that we could share in this life. And that ultimately and only the love that we share in this life is only worth it when it paints a picture of the love that we have from you. And so God, be glorified today in us and through us and even in spite of us. Would you help us to connect and commit all the dots together to know that Jesus is Lord and that together we love and honor him. Would you bind us together, God, as a community who are called to and compelled to and equipped for the journey ahead so that others can see Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. Thanks for listening. We're thankful for you.